0: God's Word, this is the passage that the message is based on, and you'll find it in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. The heading in the Bible says, um, the death of Jesus, uh, which is what I've um, called the talk today. Before we read it, I'm going to um, pray. So let's come before God. Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to listen to your word, uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to uh, open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are here and to help us to see um, how this passage is speaking into our lives today so that we can uh, embrace Jesus by faith. We pray this in his name. Amen. So let's hear from um, the Word of God, Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lava, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that In this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. So this passage uh, is about the death of Jesus, but it records the, the final three hours leading up to Jesus' death. And if we had read a little bit earlier in Mark's Gospel, we would have seen that Jesus has had a really big day um, by the time we get to this passage because right in the very early hours of the morning of that day, he was arrested and then he was led away and then uh, towards daybreak, uh, the Jewish council got together and they put Jesus on trial, accused him of all of these things. Then they sent him off to the Romans and Jesus had to stand but in a Roman court and again be accused of all these things. And so by early morning, he's being falsely accused, unjustly condemned. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. And then eventually they lead him out and crucify him. And crucifixion, that was a form of torture and execution. And so by the time we get to the events in this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus has actually already been hanging on the cross for three hours thereabouts. And this passage covers the last three hours leading up to his death. It says in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come. So that's that's actually Jewish time. The way the Jews thought about time was, you know, zero hours was daybreak, and then you counted the hours off from there. So the sixth hour is actually midday, right in the middle of the day, and the ninth hour is uh, 3 p.m. But in these Final three hours, three things happen. Three things that uncover the meaning of Jesus' death for us. Okay, Why did Jesus have to die? What's actually going on here? What is the reason for all of this? Well, there's three things that tell us the reason. And I'll tell you what the three things are and then we'll unpack them. So the three things are a cry, a curtain... and and a confession, a cry, a curtain, a confession. These three things, they uncover for us the meaning of Jesus' death, and they show us what it actually means for our lives today. So let's look at these three things in turn. Uh, First, the cry. What does the cry teach us about the death of Jesus? Well, just first of all, have a look at the cry. It says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's recorded in Aramaic first, and then we have the interpretation. Now, some bystanders they hear Jesus say, "Eloi, Eloi," and what do they think? They think, "Oh, he's calling Elijah." That's because "Eloi" is you know sounds um, short for Elijah. You know, people call Elijahs Eli. Uh, anyway, they, they think, "Hey, we, we need to see what's going to happen." Apparently, there was a Jewish myth at the time that believed that in your moment of greatest distress, you could call out to Elijah and he would attend um, to you. And uh, so that's what these guys are thinking. And so they get a a sponge with um, sour wine on it. They offer it to Jesus to drink because in their minds, they're thinking if they can just get Jesus to hold on a little longer, maybe they'll get to see Elijah come. And so they're quite excited about all of this, but they're completely mistaken Jesus is not calling to Elijah. He's actually calling to his Father, God the Father. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, this is actually a cry, really, of utter abandonment. Jesus feels abandoned on that cross. I don't know if you know the experience of abandonment, uh, to be abandoned by your spouse. One of the hardest things to get over, apparently, to be abandoned by your parents when you're a little child. Apparently, that's something you can never get over. And here's Jesus, he's on the cross, and he's feeling abandoned by his Father, God the Father. And we need to come to terms with how shocking that must have been. See, up until this moment in Jesus' life, He has known nothing but the Father's pleasure, the Father's love, the Father's affection and favour. You know, even at key points in Jesus' life, there were times when the Father said of Jesus, this is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. But at this point, all of that's gone. All that Jesus is experiencing now is the Father's abandonment. He feels forsaken. Why? Why was Jesus forsaken at that cross? Well, the answer is seen in what's actually happening around Jesus. While he's on this cross, what's going on? The verse says that when the sixth hour had come, this is at midday, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, what is the meaning of that darkness? Is it a solar eclipse? Well, I asked Siri, and Siri says a solar eclipse lasts for 7.5 minutes. This is going for three hours, so it's not a solar eclipse. Uh, Is it a dust storm? Maybe that's what it is. No, no, it's the wrong time of year for dust storms in that part of the world. So why is there darkness? What is the darkness? Well, we actually don't have to guess because we have all of these are clues laid down for us in early parts of the Bible. Because there was a time earlier in the Bible when darkness came over the whole land. That's back in the book of Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but um, God's people, the Israelites, they were uh, stuck in Egypt as slaves. God wanted to set them free. And so to do that, he sent a series of plagues on Egypt. And those plagues were judgments of God on Egypt. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. That's where darkness came over the whole land. That was a sign of God's judgment on Egypt. So that's one example of darkness on the whole land, but that's not the only time. If you follow through the storyline of the Bible, you get to the prophets. So people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Uh, Amos, Joel, Micah, all of these prophets, they speak of a day coming sometime in the future, a day of darkness over the whole land. They all speak of it. And they're all saying the same thing. That day of darkness is a day when God himself is going to visit the world in judgment on sin and evil. Amos gives us a little detail, though. He says that the darkness will come at midday. And the reason for that is that way it will be completely unmistakable. Okay, If it comes at midnight, no one's going to notice it because it's already dark. But if it comes at midday, you're not going to miss it. So Amos 8 verse 9, you can read that later on today. Uh, he predicted that at midday, darkness would come. God's judgment would come thundering into the earth. Well, here it is. It's come. It's when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And so you would think if, if, ju- if God's judgment has broken into the world at that point, you would think everyone would be crying out in terror. You'd think people would be scurrying around looking for somewhere to hide, to get away from God's judgment. And yet, remarkably, there's only one person crying out when God's judgment comes it's Jesus. See, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? He doesn't say, why have you forsaken us? He says, why have you forsaken me? Me. What's going on? Well, as Jesus hung on that cross, God's judgment against sin and against evil and injustice and all the things that are wrong, it was being poured out, but it was all being poured out on Jesus alone why did that happen? I'll tell you why. It's so that you and I don't have to face God's judgment. That's what's going on here. So you think about it, God's judgment against sin, that's actually something that we all deserve. Uh, God created us for a particular reason. He made us to know Him, to love Him, to live in this relationship with Him that, that lasts forever. Uh, that means he's God. We're not. He's the King. We're not. But how have we treated God? How have you treated God? Okay, think about that. By and large, you know, I'll speak personally. By and large, we've ignored him. By and large, we've turned away. Haven't even thought about him a lot of the times. Uh, we've disobeyed him. We've broken his laws. We've lived, at times, as if God didn't even exist. And then something goes wrong. We go, oh, that's right, I need need, um, someone to help. Oh, God. See, we live as if we are the king. And there's a word for the way that we've treated God. Do you know what that word is? Forsaken. Okay, we've forsaken the God who made us. And so what do we deserve? Okay, If we want God just to be fair, what, what is it that we deserve from God? We deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to be rejected, cast away forever under his judgment. The only one who didn't deserve to be forsaken is Jesus because he's the only one who ever lived without sin. And yet Jesus, he willingly went to the cross. Why? To take that The place, to take the place of God-forsakers like you and I. That's why he went there. You know, he got the darkness, he got the punishment, he got the abandonment that we deserve so that the moment you put your trust in him, you get the warm embrace of God the Father. That's the meaning of the cry. See, the cry gives us the insight into what actually happened on the cross. Jesus forsaken in the place of sinners so that people who deserve to be forsaken can actually be accepted by God. So that's the cry. Second, though, there's a curtain. Okay, the curtain. The curtain is another window into the meaning of Jesus' death. And we see that in verses 37 to 38. Uh, So this is actually the moment when Jesus does breathe his last and die. So a very significant moment. And yet at that moment, Mark directs our attention, so Mark, the writer of this, he directs our attention to something going over at the temple, something happening to the curtain at the temple. See verse 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what does the curtain at the temple have to do with Jesus' death? That's a bit odd. Well, let's think about it for a bit. What does the temple stand for? What is the temple all about? The temple was about God's presence among the people. So in Jerusalem, they had this massive temple built and that temple was the place that represented God's presence among them. So in the temple, there was this this room, uh, which was a perfect square, called the Holy of Holies. The most holy place is another way of talking about it. And in that most holy place, there was this cloud of glory that represented God's presence with his people. It was incredible. Now, if you lived back then, back in um, this time, let's say you, you went to the temple and you wanted to see God. Do you reckon you'd get in? Not a Not a chance. <laughs> If you went to the temple back then, all that you would find is one barrier after another. Uh, There was actually a series of courts in the temple surrounding this holy place. And so if you were a Gentile, which is someone who's not a Jew, so I'm assuming most of us here, uh, if we were living back then and we went to the temple, we would only get as far as the court of the Gentiles before we would come across a barrier that says you can't go any closer. Then if you were a Jew or in particular a male Jew, uh, you could go into the next court, but that was it after that, another barrier. Can't go any closer. Can't get any closer to God. Uh, If you were a Jewish male priest, you could go another step closer to the Holy of Holies, where there was an altar and, and a few other things. But you couldn't go all the way in, couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, and the reason why is because there was this massive curtain This curtain that was like 20 metres tall, thick as a man's arm, and that curtain is the curtain that that Mark is talking about here in verse uh, 38. This massive curtain, this was a barrier that said, no one can come into the presence of God. No one except one person, the high priest. And even then, that was only once a year on this very special occasion called the Day of Atonement when he would have to go in before God and offer a sacrifice because of the sins of the nation. And so these curtains, these barriers, they were all set up to say, no access unless there's a sacrifice. And so they spoke very clearly to the people about the fact that you just can't approach God on your own terms. You can't just think, well, I'll go and turn up and say good day to God. I'll go and hang out with Him. You can't do that on your own terms. All these curtains and barriers, they showed that God is holy. Nothing unholy can go near Him. Nothing unholy can be in His presence. You can't come near unless a sacrifice is made. And back then, they were animal sacrifices, which meant that even then, they wouldn't take you all the way in. No one could have full access, full, complete access to God because of sin. But here's what we learn. The moment Jesus breathed his last and died, that's the moment that this curtain is torn. And not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, indicating an act of God himself, And what it's saying is that Jesus' death has actually done something about our access to God. Okay, What what prevented us from getting into God is what? It's not really the curtain, it's actually our sin. Well, when Jesus died, he died as the one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The one sacrifice that we need to actually take away our sin forever. And once that sin is taken away, don't need a curtain anymore, you can go straight in. You can hang out with God. You can have this relationship with Him. This relationship where you know He loves you and He'll never leave you or forsake you. See, because of the death of Jesus, because Jesus' death is actually a sacrifice that pays for our sin, if you have that, come on in. Welcome home. Full access. Now, this is something that uh, the book of Hebrews in particular Uh, elaborates a lot on. There's lots of references throughout Hebrews of um, the access that we have into God's presence. So just to give one example, uh, Hebrews 10 verse 19. Uh, Did we get that on the screen? Oh, well done. Um, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, listen, through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great, high, uh, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How about that? The full assurance to just come on in. <laughs> this is the door wide open, God saying, come on in. That's the access that you have uh, through Jesus. And uh, I don't know if you realize the significance of that. Let me just help you understand more the significance of this access Uh, One of them relates to prayer. See, if you've got Jesus, you've got full, constant access to God. You can bring any need to Him, uh, and you you know for sure that He hears you. Uh, You you actually don't need anyone else to act as like a bridge between you and God anymore. Uh, And that's important to think about. Um, You know, sometimes I actually get strangers ring me up and say... um, oh, I've been looking for a priest or I'm looking for a pastor who can um, pray for me because I, I have this need and I need, need to get it to God. And they're asking me if I can be kind of like the bridge you know, between them and God. I mean, I'm happy to pray for people, but you don't need that if you've got Jesus because if you've got Jesus, you've got direct access. You can bring anything to him and you know for sure that he hears you. But if you don't have Jesus, what reason have you got to think that your prayers are going to get through? You've actually got no reason. There's no no confidence that that they're getting through because you need direct access and you only get that with Jesus. Well, here's another implication of direct access. Think about the day that you die. Okay, we're all going to have to do that one day. Uh, But let's think about it now. Now, what reason do you think that you're going to have direct access into heaven when you die? Okay, when you die, you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say to Him? I mean, how do you get into that holy place? You can't get in there unless you're holy. And there's only one way to be holy. You've got to have all of your sins taken away. That's why you need the death of Jesus. Okay, you need Jesus' death for you to be that sacrifice that takes away your sin. Otherwise, you're going to get to that day and you're going to knock on the door and it's not going to open. Okay, You're going to be barred from entering. You've got to have your sins taken away. That only comes from Jesus. But if you've got Jesus, come on in. Welcome home. See how, how much of a comfort this this torn curtain is. How okay, do you see that? If you've got Jesus, you've got full access to the Father. Now, there's a third thing, and that is the, uh, the confession. Okay, so we'll just go over this again. So the cry, that shows us that Jesus was forsaken so we can be embraced by God. The curtain shows us that we have full access to God by Jesus' sacrifice. But then we come to the confession which is in uh, verse 39. And I actually think that this is the most intriguing part of the story. Very intriguing, because here we have uh, the perspective of a Roman centurion. And it says there that uh, when the centurion who stood facing um, Jesus saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, this is interesting. A Roman centurion. Uh, this is actually the guy who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, we know that because um, down in fifteen verse forty-four, um, Pilate asks the centurion how things all went. Uh, so he's the one who's overseeing everything. Now we, we just just let that sink in for a moment. Okay, we get to hear the perspective of the guy who oversaw the crucifixion. That means this guy must be pretty rough. This is the fellow who made sure that when they tortured a guy on a cross, made sure that he was on there long enough and suffered long enough and then died. So this guy, I mean, he must have been a rough fellow, very ruthless, very hardened. He would have done things to people that we would not even want to imagine because crucifixion was horrible. Anyway, here's this hardened rough fellow, he's standing there, he's looking in at Jesus uh, and he's watching Jesus and he sees Jesus breathe, he's last. And I'm sure he's seen that a hundred times or more and yet this time it was so different. There was something about this man, the way he died, something about it, it just hit this centurion in like a freight train. Uh, Something about, notice how Mark says, the way Jesus breathed his last. There's something about it just completely stunned the centurion. And Mark doesn't tell us any more than that. Um, Matthew does tell us a little bit more information about what it was that stunned the centurion. But whatever it was, it caused the centurion to make this confession. Truly this man was the Son of God. And that title, Son of God, the centurion didn't make that up. He'd heard that title before because that was one of the the charges against Jesus. The Jewish leaders were charging Jesus for blasphemy on account of Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. So he knew that that was a charge against them. But see, Roman people, they knew the title Son of God. They used that for their emperor. So, you know, Caesar, they called son of the gods, because in their minds the Caesar was so powerful that he seemed godlike. And so part of the Roman worldview was you worshipped the emperor, you worshipped Caesar as a son of God. But what, this is what's so fascinating about this account, this, this confession. The centurion applies that title, that title of divinity or deity to Jesus not while Jesus is out there calming storms or healing the sick or showing his power in some amazing way, but he applies the title at the very moment when Jesus looks his most weak, weakest. Now, at the point of greatest humility, when Jesus literally breathes his last and dies. And that's the point that he says, wow, this man is the Son of God. Can you imagine that? Imagine, um, you know, you're watching a man die in the most degrading, most humiliating, uh, most uh, barbaric forms of execution ever invented in the history of the world. And you're standing there looking at this guy dripping with blood and all this stuff. And you say to yourself, wow, that's God in the flesh. (laughs) I mean, that's incredible. But see, the significance of this is the, the significance actually comes out when you see how Mark has told the whole story of Jesus. Because right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he starts like this. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so right from the outset, Mark has set about to tell, the, to tell us about the Son of God. And for Mark, Son of God, that, that's the title that... that, that gets the, to the significance of who jesus is you know the son of god for mark it means that jesus is the king of the universe he's the creator of all things he's god who has come into the world to save his people and all through mark's gospel as mark records all of the events and arranges it so that we can read it we we see people you know encountering jesus and going who is this guy Now, they see Jesus do a miracle and they're all scratching their heads, going, What is going on here? Who is this? And you get right to the middle of Mark's gospel and Jesus actually says to his disciples, Who do you say I am? And well, they all, you know, they talk about who the crowd says Jesus is, but Jesus says, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter gets the closest because he says, You are the Messiah. But even then, his understanding of Messiah was way off. And you keep going through Mark's Gospel, you get to the point where Jesus is put on trial, he's accused of being the Son of God, which they say is blasphemy. That's by the religious leaders, they don't get it. They kill Jesus for it. And so the incredible thing about Mark's Gospel is that the only person who actually gets it, the only person in the whole book who sees clearly who Jesus is, is this hardened rough nut. This Roman centurion, responsible for overseeing tortures, He's the guy who finally sees it. In fact, he's the first human to ever acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And if anything, that tells you that Christianity is for the most unlikely people. You know, you might be here today thinking to yourself, there's no way Jesus would ever want anything to do with me. Well, think again. Or you might be here thinking, you know, there's there's no way, I'm the last person, I'm the least person who would ever, you know, become a believer, right? Well, what about the Roman centurion? He became a believer. See, anyone can become a believer. Jesus can accept anyone. But deeper than that, what the centurion's confession actually tells us is that if you really want to see who Jesus is, if you want to get to the real heart of what Jesus is all about, then the way to do it is to look at the cross. Okay? To stand before the cross, like the centurion, and look. Look at what's taking place. That's where you'll come to know what Jesus is all about. That's why Mark has put it right there. Okay, he watched Jesus breathe these last, and that's the point. When when revelation happened, when this guy can see that Jesus is the Son of God. See, the cross shows us that the God who made everything has come into this world, has gone to that cross to save sinners like you and me. See, our sin, it's so bad, God has to punish it, but God made a way to punish our sin without punishing us. He did it. By sending his son, Jesus. And, and that's, that's what this passage shows us. The cry, the curtain, the confession. They're, they're each little windows into seeing the heart of Jesus. And uh, each of them actually shows us that he is the saviour that we all need. We, we really do need Jesus because... Without Him, we're actually heading towards an eternity of being forsaken by God. But with Jesus, that has been taken away. Jesus was forsaken in your place so that you can be <clears throat> eternally welcomed. And you can depend on Jesus because, because of who He is, because He is God. I mean, if He's God, He has the power to actually save you for all of eternity. So you can actually depend on Him. And so, this Good Friday, if you're not already a believer, why not make today the day that you become one? Put your trust in Jesus. Okay? Take him as your Saviour. Because only in him are you safe for all of eternity. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, so much for this um, wonderful. Display of your love for a world that had turned its back on you. We thank you, Father, that you didn't turn your back on the world, but rather uh, sent your only Son into the world to be the one who who took our sin on Himself and paid the the penalty that we deserved, and was forsaken in our place so that we can be welcomed in. And we thank you, Father, for the the comfort that it is to see that curtain torn, to see that that we have now this full access to you, unhindered and without any sense of uh, pushback. And we thank you, Father, that in this confession that we see clearly uh, who Jesus is, so that we have confidence that he really can save us, that he really can give us uh, an eternal salvation that is guaranteed. So may we all... Embrace Christ and may we live with him as our king. And we ask it in his name. Amen.